0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. As Christians, how do we live without fear, foreboding, or fretting? Well, Paul makes a command that we are to be anxious for nothing. And it's interesting that the word in the Greek for nothing is, well, nothing, In other words, there should be no circumstance, situation, trial, or problem that should cause us to be anxious or fearful or worrying. Well, before we jump into today's Daily Thunder, I just want to remind you that we have an upcoming fall week-long discipleship training program this November 7th through the 13th. If you're looking for a time away just to focus on Jesus Christ and to be built strong spiritually, well, consider joining us this November for our week-long discipleship training program. We've also opened up next summer's programs as well if you're interested in coming out next year for one of our discipleship training programs. You can learn more about all those training programs at eldersley.com forward slash daily. Now, in today's Daily Thunder, we're going back in and talking about the Christian mindset. How is a Christian supposed to think amidst all the craziness and chaos of the world today? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 as we look at Paul's command to be anxious for nothing. Well, if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Again, we've been walking through a, a little series <clears throat> looking at the Christian mindset. And of course, this came out of just my own need to, uh, in this time, in this culture, in the middle of all this craziness, to say, okay, what what are we as believers, how are we supposed to think, how are we supposed to reason, uh, what are we to dwell upon, uh, in this in this hour, uh, in this season when everything else is going crazy. <laughs> uh, so what I want to do is just uh, <clears throat> read the passage. And again, there's countless passages we could be looking at, but for whatever reason, I just chose Philippians 4. Uh, but I want to start with verse 4 and just kind of read down through verse 9, just so it's fresh in our minds. So uh, if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Uh, Paul writes this, <clears throat> Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with gratitude, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there is anything virtuous, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, We've been walking through those first few verses, and again in verse 4, Paul says, rejoice! Rejoice! And the Lord always. And again, you know that the Greek word for always means always, right? And in case we missed it, he says, again, let me remind you, rejoice. In other words, you cannot get out of this one. I mean, there, there is no loophole where we're saying, well, maybe if times are difficult, oh, maybe if things are rough, oh, maybe if, see, you, can't, you don't have any of that in this passage. And there's a double emphasis on the fact that it does not matter circumstance, it does not matter situation, you are called to rejoice. And if you're like, yeah, but Paul doesn't know my circumstances. Well, he's sitting in the bottom of a prison cell, likely chained to a guard, and he's saying, you know what you should have is this attitude of constant rejoicing. So I don't think, I'm presuming, none of our circumstances are quite that severe. And if Paul can say that in his circumstance, surely we can rejoice in ours. And then he says, hey, will you let everyone come to know your gentleness? And again, we don't have time to get into that whole concept, but it is completely different than just being, oh, will you be kind to the people around you? And again, if you want to flesh that out, you'll have to go back and listen to that study. Uh, last time, we looked at the end of verse 5, which is this whole idea of the Lord is at hand. And again, there seems to be a two-fold reality with this, that the one it's talking about the time aspect, meaning, hey, the Lord's day is coming soon, that he, he's, he's just around the corner. I mean, he's just about to show up. He's just here. I mean, he's almost here. Now, granted, we have been praying for 2,000 years, come Lord Jesus, come, and he's almost been here for 2,000 years. But he is closer now than he ever has been. So whenever he decides to come, you realize the Lord is at hand. And the other aspect of that was the spatial idea, or the relational idea, that it's not just the Lord is coming, in the sense that it's drawing near, but he himself has drawn near. And now he's smack dab in the middle of our lives and he's pressing in upon us and, and that, that whole idea. Now, what I want to do this morning is look at the beginning of verse 6 with you. Paul says, and again this is flowing out of this idea of the Lord is at hand, but he says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with gratitude, make your requests known to God. He says, be anxious For nothing. Did you know what the Greek word for nothing means? Nothing. So there is not one single thing that you can list. There is not one single situation, circumstance, problem, person, financial, whatever. There's not one single thing that you can list that you can say, oh, I found the exception. I can actually be anxious in this one because there is nothing you are to be anxious for is that not the most horrible statement you've ever heard i mean i really wish i mean deep, deep down i really wish it was like be anxious not for most things i mean you i'll give you a list of 10 things you can pick one of those and then you can be anxious for that one pa- paul does not give you that option He says there's nothing in your life that you're to be anxious for, that you are never to fear, you are never to worry, there is never to be anxiety, there is no anxiousness in your life. And the only time you're allowed to even be fearful, to use that term, is when it is a fear of the Lord. But outside of that one caveat of the fear of the Lord, there is to be no fear, there is to be no worry or anxiety in your life. Now, even before we get into this, how you doing? Because I don't know, in our culture today, if you want to define our culture by a word, anxious might be a good one. Fearfulness, worry, trepidation, concern, care. And yet we are told as believers that there should be nothing that is causing worry, anxiousness, fear, I was looking at that word, anxious. I was just curious of, of just kind of the undercurrent of this whole thing. And what's interesting is, again, it has this idea of inner turmoil. It has this idea of to be concerned or to care about something. It has this idea of worry or being unquiet, which I thought was an interesting way of defining it, that there's an unquietness in your soul. But when I was looking at the word here in our passage for being anxious for nothing, the word anxious, when you get at the very root of the word— Get this, this is interesting. The root word has this idea of to, to divide, to split or to cut into pieces, or to be distracted. Do you know what anxious or worry or fear does to you? It causes a divided soul. It splits you into pieces. It causes <clears throat> distraction. Where here's my life that I'm supposed to be living, but when I live in anxiousness, or I live in fear, or I live in worry, or I live in the concern, what it does is it it forces me to live in multiple places. That I'm living here, but I'm also living in this what if, and well, what about, and what happens, and, and you as a believer are not called to be divided. You as a believer are not called to be split into little pieces. You are not, as a believer, to be distracted. Isn't that interesting? And so there's this, there's this undercurrent and this idea of anxiousness that whenever I'm experiencing anxiousness or worry or fear or that kind of concern, then what is going on inside of me is that there's this, there's this disquietness about my soul where I am distracted and I'm just, I'm just being swayed back and forth. And Paul says that's never to happen in your life. That you're to be steadfast, that you are to be immovable, that you are to have one gaze and one focus. It's interesting that the idea of being concerned for someone or something out of love is very different than this. It seems like biblically you can be concerned out of love for somebody, and that's not this. For example, Uh, Just if you flip over a page before our passage, Philippians 2, verse 20. And Philippians 2, verse 20, Paul is talking about the fact that he's going to send Timothy shortly to you, to the the Philippians. And then he says in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So what is going on inside of Timothy? Well, there is a genuine concern there's a care, but it's out of love. And so somehow, and I, again, I'm still trying to flesh this out of my own mind, but hey, if, if I have a genuine concern, Paul says that same word in Corinthians where he says, I have a concern for the churches. That, I mean, I, I face the beatings, I face the stoning, I face the, the, the rods, I face the shipwrecks, I face the perils and, perils and perils and perils and perils and perils. And if that wasn't enough, Paul says, I have this deep concern for the churches. But that's an entirely different idea than what we're talking about here. Does that make any sense? That somehow you can have this deep, overwhelming love for a person and therefore have a concern or a care for them, but that's not living in anxiousness or worry or fear. In fact, if you want maybe a simplified way to think about this, it seems like more often than not, when I'm living in anxiousness and worry and fear, it's usually inward-focused, I'm I'm worried about me. I'm concerned about my life and my safety and my security and my, 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 my. And maybe that's not the only way we can define it, but that seems like it's a good, at least quick litmus test. As a society, though, you realize we live in a state of anxiety. Not just because of COVID. I mean, we just live in a state of just fear and worry and I mean we always live this way as a culture in fact human history can be defined that way I think it's interesting back in 1965 Billy Graham made this statement <laughs> I just I'm like Billy buddy Th- that was 1965 things were good things were fine I mean I know that everyone had to walk uphill to school barefoot in the snow both directions I know that but you know those are the glory days but listen to how he defined the culture or society in 1965. He says, historians will probably call our era the age of anxiety. Anxiety is the natural result when our hopes are centered in anything short of God and his will for us. So <laughs> could you imagine? Here's Billy Graham. He's looking at culture. And he goes, do you know what history is probably going to have to labor, label our culture right now, the age of anxiety. And I'm thinking, well, okay, out of the, you know, what, 60 years since that statement's been made, it has only increased. I mean, this thing's only expanded. And and everything that we've invented to create less stress and more time has actually done the opposite. Isn't it funny how, I think it was in the 50s or the 60s, someone came before Congress and said, hey, with with all the new technology that is coming out, and with all this stuff that's happening, the guess is that by 1980, we'll be down to between 20 and 30 hour work weeks, 40 weeks a year. Yeah, we're going to have all this leisure time, we're going to have all this relaxation, we're going to have all this comfort and calm. And by 1980, do you know what happened? The opposite, actually. Because it seems like the more we invent stuff to produce calm and time and, it means it actually shrinks and takes more of it. And so as a society we've actually gotten more and more stressed. I mean never in human history have have we lived with such issues like the depression stuff and the anxiety, you know, all the drugs we have to have for anxiety and and as a culture, I mean everyone's going through burnout and I mean we're just we live in a society that is just overwhelmed by this idea of fear and anxiety and worry and concern and just And everyone has this divided soul that everyone's been cut into these little pieces and they're living where they're just, they're distracted by the realities of what is going on in their life. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Do you know what anxiety does? It puts a backpack upon your shoulder full of rocks that just weighs you down. And I don't know if you ever walked through a season of anxiety or stress or worry or concern, but it's almost like it's suffocating. It's almost like, I can't, I can't breathe. Why? It's pressure. And you've got to remember, you weren't made for that. As if you can carry the fullness of the world upon your own shoulders. Uh, one scholar, Gordon Fee, about the passage, he says this, this apprehension and fear mark the life of an unbeliever. Isn't that interesting apprehension and fear mark the life of an un, of the unbelieving the untrusting for whom the present is all that there is and from whom the present is so uncertain or for many so filled with distress and suffering as in the case of the philippians and so what he's trying to articulate here is that in the philippian in the philippian world Here's this little town, and because of the persecution, and because of the pressure, and because of all this stuff, here they are. They're living in this turmoil and anxiety. And I'm, I mean, hey, what's gonna happen? And what if? And you know, what happened about the political, you know, election that's coming up? And I don't know what they had, but you know. <laughs> and what if someone, what, what if so-and-so became the Caesar? And and what would happen if the economy, and what about my finances, and what about my job, and what about my, what about my what about my and so Paul says, Can I? Can I remind you, you're a Christian. So be anxious for nothing. <clears throat> uh, we've said this many times before, but Richard Rembrandt used to say that there were 366 commands in the Bible not to fear. He said there's one for every single day of the year, including leap year. And supposedly he had them all memorized. And he said that was actually a blessing because the day that he was taken in Romania and sent to prison was leap year, the day of the leap year. And so here he is in the back of the police vehicle and he's being escorted out and he's just rehearsing. He's like, Lord, I will not fear. And he says, isn't it wonderful that you even gave me a promise for this day? It was interesting. I was trying to find a list of the 366. So I got online, I was searching Rabbi Google and just seeing what, what would happen I could not find the list. You would think, with all these people saying 366, surely someone has made the list. Could not find a list. In fact, if anything, I found a whole bunch of blogs and articles and forums that just said, it's fake. There's not 366. Because the word itself only shows up like 175 times in scripture, so there's no way you can get 366. I'm like, that's interesting. So I decided I'd search. Not that I didn't trust them, but I just was like, well, I, I, got, I got some great Bible study tools. So, <clears throat> so here's, here's the search. Fear, affright, afraid, dread, fray, panic, or terror. And there was anything that had the idea of fear, the topic of fear. And I just boop, 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 pushed a button, and about half a second, these were the results. There were 746 now, for clarity's sake, those are not the commands not to fear. That's just the Bible talking about fear. So some of that is fear God. So that's included in this. Do not fear. That's included in this, right? So-and-so was terrified. That's in this. So you can't just say, well, there's 746, because that's not actually a fair, that's not a fair number. Does that make sense? But I have not had time this week to read all 746. But I'm guessing That 366 is legit. In fact, I did find a book online that had a whole list of 366, but I didn't have time to buy it and look at it. So so I'm just going to trust that Richard Wernbrandt knew what he was talking about. And if he had 366 memorized, I'm trusting that there are 366. You realize, regardless of the number, you in Scripture are commanded not to fear. In fact, it was interesting One author said that the command most given in Scripture over every other command is do not fear. Even more than, hey, you are to love. The do not fear is actually more, it's repeated more than any other command in Scripture. Now, I haven't had time to look that up and prove that either, so I'm just, I'm going to trust them. But you realize this thing is all over the place. Why would it be that God saw it so fit to tell his people Don't live in fear. Maybe it's because we have a propensity to do so. So I'm not going to give you 366. I'm not going to give you 746. Let me just give you like 10. Just just so you can hear the echo of Scripture. Sound good? Hebrews 13. I keep coming back to this verse, but Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear for what can man do to me? Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. Now the word fear does not show up in that passage, but do you know what the undercurrent of that passage is? You can trust him. You can actually live with peace. You can actually have hope. Why? Because it does not matter what the circumstances around you may be. You have not been broken. You have not been crushed. You have not been destroyed. Why? Because he is smack dab in the middle of that thing with you. Romans 8, <clears throat> uh, verses 14 through 18. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not, get this, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So obviously, Paul is making a connection that when I live in sin, there is an immediate tie to fear. That's interesting to me. That, hey, if, I am, if I'm a slave to sin, one of the aspects or one of the fruits of one of the realities of living in sin is that I will live in fear. And he goes on and says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the present sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, hey, you are children of God, and the Spirit testifies of that inside of you. So you do not have to live in fear. You can live in hope. Why? Because, wow, it doesn't matter what we're going through. What does not matter the present sufferings you are facing right now compared to whew, where we're heading. That's great news! A few verses later in Romans 8.31... Paul says, well, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 35, he says, well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then verse 37, 38, he answers and he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if that is true, why would we live in fear? If that is true, why would we live in worry and anxiety? Psalm 23, and you know the psalm well, the Lord is my shepherd. That he's going to lead me through the valleys of the shadows. And that I do not need to fear evil. Why? Because he is with me. The Lord is at hand. So there's no need for anxiety or fretting, foreboding. Zephaniah 3.17, I love this verse. Zephaniah 3.17, the prophet says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You realize that if the Lord has drawn near and if he is quieting us with his love and if he's just celebrating what is going on, you realize that I don't have to live in fear and worry and anxiety. Why? Because he is with me. That he is quieting my soul with his love. He is my salvation. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Perhaps the most famous passage on worry and anxiety is Matthew 6. Here's Jesus uh, preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he he says in uh, Matthew 6, verse 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, you ready for this? Do not be anxious about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Just look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to the span of his life? In truth, you probably just take hours away. (laughs) That's not in the passage, but... saying, well, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the world, right, that the, the world out there, right, the Gentiles, how the Gentiles live, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself. Sufficient for this day is its own trouble. Do you realize how many times Jesus keeps saying in that passage, don't be anxious. Stop worrying. I know, but what am I going to eat? God'll take care of you. What am I going to wear? Clothing, hopefully, but God'll take care of that too. You <laughs> know, that there's no need to be anxious or worried or concerned. So here's the question, how do we get out of anxiousness? How do we live without worry and fear? Like, if I'm called, okay, I get that. I'm called not to be anxious. I'm called not to worry. I'm called not to live in fear. But how? If you look at our passage in Philippians 4, Paul gives you the not so secret secret. It seems like a secret because apparently nobody's living this way. <laughs> But it's not a secret because it's rather plain and obvious. Look at this. Look at right at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. We know that, but we do not know that. In other words, we may mentally nod our heads and be like, yes, the Lord is at hand. Yes, he is coming soon. Yes, he is pressing in upon us. He's given us his very spirit. But if we actually realized the truth of that statement, it would nearly be impossible to live in worry and fear and anxiety. How could you live in worry and fear and anxiety when the Lord is at hand? Have you ever seen a little kid who's about to go into a room but the lights are off and they like take a step and then they take a step back and they take a step and they take a step back and then they run and they grab their dad's hand and yanks the father into the room with them. Why is it that they can march with confidence into the room as long as dad's there? Well, it's because dad is there. (laughs) And if there's anything bad in that room, dad's going to deal with it. Wouldn't it be neat if we had that kind of trust, confidence in your God? See, the way most of us live, we live as if, well, even if the Lord is at hand, he can't can't deal with all this stuff. I'm not so sure he can handle these problems. And we may not actually say that, but that's how we're living. Because our actions declare that. Well, yeah, God can handle everything. Yeah, but then why do you live as if he can't? And if I actually believe that God was at hand, and he is not just going before me or behind me, he's actually going within me through his indwelling Holy Spirit, then as Scripture consistently says, what can man do to you? Well, they can beat me. I know that. Well, they could cut off my head. Yeah, yeah, they could. But if God is smack dab in the middle of that thing, there is still no reason to fear. Which is why I love the stories of the old martyrs. I mean, you, you, you think about the suffering that goes on today and, and it seems like, in a, at least in a modern American culture, anybody suffers and there's like moaning and wailing and they start taking Facebook pictures and putting it on Instagram of like, look how horrible things are. But you realize back in the day, there was such a confidence in who their God was that they could even march to the lions with a smile and a song, knowing that, yes, I may be eaten today. Which seems a little concerning. And yet they would gleefully leap to their deaths in the arenas. Why? Because they knew who their God was. Not that we should be expectant or desirous for death. Please understand. (laughs) Right, The early church was noticing that so many people were desiring martyrdom, the crown of martyrdom, that they had to issue an edict that said, it's really good to die for the Lord, but it's also great to live for the Lord. You know, so this isn't like let's go find some ways where we can die quickly that's, that's not what we're saying but even if you're in that kind of a circumstance there's still no reason to fear or forebode or be concerned or hey I, I know that there's an election coming up but why are you afraid do you not realize that the Lord can shift the hearts of kings so it does not matter who's in that position now do I have a preference yes Am I going to vote? Yes. But no matter whoever wins the election, I can trust. I can relax. I can actually have peace. Yeah, but what if so-and-so? I trust God in this. Because they do not have their position outside of God giving them the authority. And if God so desires, God can take them away. By a whole bunch of different means. And he can put who he wants in there. And maybe his purpose and his plan, his will, is to purify and sanctify the church. Well, what's the best way to do that? Persecution. So let us not fear the pressing. Let us not fear the persecution. Could you imagine a grape who is fearing the pressing? Oh, no, here comes the foot. Yeah, but that's actually for your benefit. How on earth is crushing good for me? Well, you'll never become wine if you don't. But don't whine while you're getting crushed. (laughs) By the way, I'm not for alcohol. I'm just, it's the biblical illustration. (laughs) I've realized I'm like, uh, I could probably, that could be misinterpreted. You realize you can live at peace though. Why? Because the one who is peace has drawn near. And if he is near, then there's nothing that you can go through. There's nothing that you can experience that needs foreboding in. Fear. And it's interesting, Paul continues this idea in verse 6. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. So he's giving you the opposite. How should you be living? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. So do you know what you do instead of living in fear? Do you know what you do instead of living in anxiety? Go after Jesus. Because it is in the going after Jesus you find that there is no fear. It's when you're going after the Prince of Peace that you experience peace. So all that being said, let me give you four quick practicals, if you're wanting some practicals, of how do I live without fear? Number one, recognize it's a focus thing. It's a focus issue. I say this all the time, but you realize whatever you focus on is going to grow bigger and stronger in your life. If you focus on temptation, temptation is going to grow bigger and stronger in your life. If you focus on the things that cause fear, those will grow bigger and stronger in your life. But guess what happens if you focus on Jesus? He is going to grow bigger and stronger in your life. If you notice that every night as I watch the news, I I always go to bed full of anxiety. Stop watching the news! In fact, regardless of whether you get anxiety, stop watching the news! It is unhelpful. You realize the news is only there to get ratings, which means they have to do the emotional pulls and oh, no, the world's falling. Oh, no, the world's about to collapse again. Oh, no. Why? So you can keep watching and figure out what the oh, no is about. I do not watch the news. I do not read newspapers. My life is calm. And if you say, well, you're going to miss out on a lot of important stuff. If it's important, somebody calls me. Without a doubt. I always get a phone call. So I, I have not missed big stuff. And if I did, praise the Lord, <laughs> You realize that whatever you focus on is going to keep growing bigger and stronger. So why not turn your attention to the one you want to grow bigger and stronger in your life? So if something is distracting you, if something is causing you anxiety, if something is causing whatever, keep your gaze steadfast upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I love what Paul says, and even in our passage, Philippians 4, 8, he says, think on these things. If you're going to ponder and meditate upon something, keep it guarded. Ponder these kind of things. Well, what kind of things should I be pondering? Well, it's that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Think on those things and let those grow bigger and stronger in your life. Proverbs eighteen ten says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And do you know what your position is? It's in Jesus. It's in his name that we find refuge. It's in his name we find our safety and our security. You realize you do not have to live in fear and anxiety and worry and concern and foreboding and fretting. Why? Because we are in Jesus. So keep your focus steadfast upon him. Number two is this idea, not just focus, but it's the idea of an eternal mindset. You've got to live with eternity in view. It's amazing how many things we tend to worry and concern ourselves with that are not going to last for eternity. It's amazing. If if I start feeling that that bait for anxiety or that bait for fear, I ask myself typically a simple question. Is this going to matter in 100 years? Now, if it's going to matter in 100 years, then I probably should ask, is this going to matter for eternity? And if it's going to matter for eternity, then maybe I should ponder it for a little bit. But most things that we're dealing with are not going to matter a year from now. Most of the time, what we're we're anxious about, is not going to matter a month from now. And yet we're giving so much of our mental space and so much of our time and energy and focus to the temporal what would happen if we actually became eternally minded? What if we began to live as if, as Jonathan Edwards and Leonard Ravenhill used to say, if eternity truly was stamped upon our eyeballs? See, what, what if I would live with this gaze that eternity is what I'm living for? See, what if I began to live as if, well, what I want what my life to matter is the stuff that's coming. And you realize that if I begin to live with eternity in view, it puts a lot of the temporal stuff in its place. Which means, Lord, I trust you. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the election, but is this going to matter in 10 billion trillion years from now in eternity? No. And yet it may shift the direction of our culture, but I still trust Jesus. And I'm, I'm, I can pretty much guarantee you, if God has not returned in 100 years, whoever wins this election And a hundred years from now, our culture is going to look drastically different than it does now anyway. I mean, it already looks drastically different than it did 50 years ago. No matter who the president is. See, what if I would just live, though, with this eternal mindset? And you realize, we have the end of the book. We know who wins. We know who the victor is. And if that is true, and we begin to live with that reality... It doesn't matter about all the nonsense. Why? I'm living for eternity. I'll just give you one verse. Revelation 21.4. Just ponder this fact that this is coming. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You as a believer are to be living for eternity. So keep your focus. Have an eternal mindset. Third, agree with scripture. You realize you are commanded not to fear. Which means when you have a bait for fear and anxiety or worry, guess what you should do? Obey scripture. <laughs> Stop listening to it. In fact, do you realize that as a Christian, You can actually command your soul to come into alignment with truth. Yeah, command yourself. Nathan, this is truth. You're going to live it. Even if everything within you doesn't want to. I love what David says in Psalm 42, verse 5. He asks the question, Why are you downcast, O my soul? It's like he's looking, he's like, man, why... Why am I in a funk? Why why am I just in this like, kind of state? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Then listen to what he says. And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he shifts, and he begins to command the soul. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Why, Why are you so fretting? Why are you feeling fear? Jesus is your hope. He's your salvation. Come into alignment with truth. You realize you are called to obey Scripture, the command of Scripture. And what are you commanded to do? Not fear. So even if you don't feel like it, command it. Soul, you will live for Jesus today. Soul, you are not to be fearful. My hope is in the Lord. And if you have to say that a thousand times in a day, so be it. But bring your life into alignment with what Scripture says. If you want another little key thought in terms of this agreement with Scripture, you realize that you are not to be self-focused. You are to turn outward, biblically. And it's amazing that the only way we can typically live in anxiety and fear and worry is if we're self-focused. So what if in the moments that we're living in the fear and the worry, what if we would purposely turn our gaze outward for the needs of others? What you'll find is that your needs and your anxiety and your fear actually just begin to diminish. See, what if you actually took Paul's command to heart and you began to take all that fear and all that anxiety and that bait for worry and you begin to lay that at the feet of Jesus in prayer? Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. See, see, what if we took everything that we're dealing with and just said, God, you're going to have to handle this. Which brings us to number four. It's not just the focus. It's not just the eternally minded thing. It's not just an agreement with Scripture. But what if I would actually roll the burden upon the Lord? What if I would actually cast all my cares upon him? Uh, Deuteronomy 31.8 says that it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Why do I, why do I not have to be f- fearful or dismayed? Because he's never going to leave me or forsake me. Deuteronomy 31.8. Now listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter five six or 7 He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. You realize God cares for you, which means you don't have to carry your anxiety. You do not have to carry that burden. And it's interesting, what Peter is doing is he's reaching back and pulling out this idea from the Old Testament, from Psalm 37, 5. In Psalm 37.5, listen to what the psalmist says. This is so good. The psalmist says in Psalm 37.5, Commit your way unto the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Commit your way unto the Lord, trust in him. That word for commit your way unto the Lord has this idea of to roll a burden upon a pack animal. I look at you and I say, look, uh, you have a thousand pound package this burden, that you're going to have to carry 300 miles across the desert. Go. Now, I know a few of you are pretty muscular, but I'm almost confident that none of you, in fact, I am confident, that none of you can carry 1,000 pounds 300 miles across the desert. So how on earth are you going to get that burden across that desert? Oh, that's easy. Get a beast of burden. You know what a beast of burden is? It's those animals like a donkey or a camel that are able, they're created to carry heavy loads. A camel can actually carry immense weight. So what do you do? You, you get the camel to get down on its knees. You take this burden and you roll the burden upon the back of the pack animal, this beast of burden. You tie it all in there. And do you know what you can do? You can actually carry a thousand pounds across 300 miles of desert but it's not because you're carrying it. It's because you have a beast of burden. And so in Psalm 37.5, when the psalmist says that you're to take and cast your way or commit your way unto the Lord, to cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you, that, hey, I am to trust him. That idea is I'm to take my burden. I'm to take my anxiety. I'm to take my fear. I'm to take my worry. And I'm to roll that burden upon the Lord and he will carry it. Trust Him. He cares for you. Wouldn't it be neat if you didn't have to carry it? Wouldn't it be neat if if you had this bait of like, Lord, I'm really concerned about the election, but I'm not going to carry it any longer. So Lord, here you go. You carry it. Now the temptation is we want to take it back. (laughs) But the moment you reach out and grab it, you let the Spirit of God remind you uh, you're not to carry that and roll it afresh upon his shoulders. You were not made to be a beast of burden. You're a sheep. Sheep can't carry much. Let him carry it. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Charles Spurgeon said of that verse, commit your way into the Lord Roll the whole burden of life upon the Lord. Leave with Jehovah not your present fretfulness merely, but all of your cares. In fact, submit the whole tenor of your way to him. Cast away anxiety. Resign your will. Submit your judgment. Leave all with the God of all. What a medicine this is for expelling envy and fear. How blessed must he be who lives every day in obedience to it. If you were to summarize this whole idea and I could put into like one little package, it would be this. If you're not going to live in fear, if you're not going to live in worry, if you're not going to live in anxiety, the secret is you have to know who your God is. If you don't know who he is, you cannot trust him. If you do not trust him, you will not allow him to carry things in your life. But if you know who he is, and the fact that he is the Prince of Peace, if you know that he has created the universe, that he holds all things in the palm of his hand, don't you think he can handle your situation? Don't you think he can handle your circumstance? But you've got to know who he is. David was running away from Saul and he comes to this little city on a hill called Gath. In 1 Samuel chapter 21. Could you imagine as David, you're running, you're escaping from Saul and you, for whatever reason he goes to Gath. Do you know who's from Gath? Goliath. So David walks into the city. Now, if you were from Gath, and you saw the one who killed your mighty warrior, you'd be thinking, oh, praise the gods. They brought David so that we can get rid of him. And David, for whatever reason, is in Gath. And that, that's when, he, by the way, I started acting crazy. He started foaming at the mouth, all this stuff. But he writes in Psalm 56, while he's in Gath, surrounded by his enemies. Listen to what David says. This is Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And if David could say that with enemies surrounding him, how much more should we be willing to say that no matter our circumstance? If Paul is willing to say be anxious for nothing while he's sitting in a a jail cell, how much more in every circumstance should we not live with fear, anxiety, and worry, and trepidation, and fretting, and foreboding, and be a Christian? Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you did not make us to carry burdens. That we are not to carry the weight of fear and anxiety and worry, foreboding. Lord, don't let us be a divided soul. Don't, don't let us be cut into little pieces where we're living in multiple places, just wondering if what happens and the what ifs and outs. Lord, could we somehow. Know that you are near. Jesus, could we take every circumstance and bring it to you in prayer that somehow we find actually greater intimacy with you, the more pressure is put upon us. that it's like the pressure of circumstance and trials and situations merely only press us more unto you. Lord, could we have a singular focus, which is you? Could you, could you give us an etern, eternal mindset? Lord, would you allow us to agree with Scripture and come in alignment with it? Lord, would you allow us, enable us to roll the burden of our lives upon your back? Because you are able to carry it. We are not. Ultimately, Jesus, can we just get to know who you are? Because, Lord, I'm convinced the more we get to know you, it just wouldn't leave any space for fear or worry or anxiety. So, Lord, whatever it is that you need to do in our lives, we give you permission. Lord, we don't want to be Christians who are running around fearful, because that declares that we do not trust you. It declares that we have no hope in you. But, Lord, if the rest of the culture is living in concern and fear and worry and We are marked by peace and joy and hope. What an incredible testimony of who you are in our lives. And as Peter says, we can always be ready to declare the hope that lies within us to everybody who asks, which means they should be seeing this. So Lord, will you do this in our lives? Do whatever is necessary in our lives to bring this about. Love you. We thank you. In your precious name we pray.